This episode is sponsored by a donor to Global Wellness Institute, or GWI. GWI is a 501c3 nonprofit organization with a mission to empower wellness worldwide by educating the public and private sectors about preventative health and wellness. GWI's research, programs, and initiatives have been instrumental in the growth of the $4.5 trillion U.S. dollar wellness economy and in uniting the health and wellness industries. Visit globalwellnessinstitute.org. This episode, we have Allison Plosko. Allison was born and raised in Houston, Texas. She studied psychology at Tulane, which she attended on scholarship and was particularly interested in industrial and organizational psychology. She canceled a trip to go overseas to teach and opted to return to Houston to be close to her mother, who was facing health challenges at the time. Allison was moved by how her mother struggled to get needed physical and mental health services, and unfortunately, the absence of that care was a key contributory factor to her passing after a year. This became a mission for Allison to explore ways to enhance the health care ecosystem. She began working with an accelerator focused on healthcare investments called Village Capital. She is now a director at Telocity, funding startups at the seed and pre-seed level to support adolescent mental well-being. Allison, thank you so much for being on our show. Yeah, thank you. I'm excited to be here. That was really great. Uh, we had a chance to meet uh, recently, but I was really intrigued with the work that you're doing uh, in the mental health space. And um, I think it's a very important segment in terms of bringing capital to fund initiatives and businesses that are, are looking at this uh, arena. Um, and, and actually, I'll, I'll say this to you after we're done, but I was really impressed. My daughter, who's 14, uh, she uh, wrote a, an essay on mental wellness um, after being inspired by one of the guests we had on the show. And uh, said she's posted it to, to Medium. I, I kind of nudged her in that direction to, to post it. But um, clearly, oh, this, awesome. uh, thank you. Yeah, um, clearly, this is a, a part of the, the zeitgeist, uh, as it were, uh, currently. And so um, it's going to be, uh, I think, uh, impactful and, and will resonate with a lot of people. So, Allison, I love going uh, all the way back and, and sort of starting with uh, where you were born and, and raised. Was that Houston? Yes, born and raised in Houston, Texas. Got you. And um, uh, do you have siblings? I do. I have a younger brother and a younger sister. Got you. Okay. And um, tell us about uh, growing up. Uh, what, were, what were the areas that you were interested in? Were they in the arts and, or theater or sports? Yeah, so I played, I'm very tall. Um, despite what most people think through video, I am actually about six feet tall. Nice. Um, so I played basketball in junior high. I was on the A team. Um, so that was like the best one. You had A, B, and C. So I was very proud of that because I also tried out for volleyball and I was terrible at it. Didn't even make oh, the okay. C team. <laughs> okay. um, when you mentioned so, your height, I first thought of volleyball. <laughs> yeah, no, I was awful at it. So I played basketball both in, you know, the little kitty league in elementary and then on through um, into junior high. Unfortunately, because I grew so quickly, um, I my, the doctors told me that I actually don't have a lot of cartilage in my joints and my knees. And so I'm very sensitive to anything that's high impact. So I wound up having to stop playing basketball. 
Um, but I, on the sports side, that was, that was what I played. I also did dabbled a little bit in dance, but I think every, everyone does at some point. Um, and then I think what I was really interested from an intellectual standpoint, um, I was all over the place. I was really interested in philosophy, but I think I've always had this deep question of like, what is the purpose of us being here? And so um, was interested in everything from philosophy um, on into things like really abstract ideas around particle physics, really in the spirit of trying to answer that question of what is our purpose here? Um, so I was really intrigued by that all through high school that kind of consumed what I pursued. Yeah. Um, what, uh, who are some of your favorite philosophers that you enjoyed reading? Um, so I really enjoyed Plato. Um, I think that was probably, probably the big one. Also, I mean, the big Greek ones. I think I was a big, big Greek philosophy nerd. Gotcha. Okay. And, and you're asking the existential questions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think I've always had a little bit of that streak in me for as long as I can remember. Um, yeah. And I still, it's still something that I think a lot about. Okay. Okay. Well, good. That um, the passion doesn't die in that one. That <laughs> um, and then, you know, of course, it is interrelated when you think about uh, particle physics and, and quantum mechanics. And there's a lot of juicy topics in that arena, especially like uh, the uncertainty principle of Heisenberg and, and what does that mean on a macro scale? Uh, are we are we really mm -hmm. here? Are we a waveform? Are we a particle? <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's, I mean, just so many really interesting, wild questions out there. I think that can really make you question um, both your existing reality, but also give you, like, I think, in some ways, some hope. I always found some of these ideas, the fact that they were so big and so far-fetched and that I was here, here I was looking up at this vast universe um, with many rules and theories still unproven that it is humbling in so many ways and it created almost a visceral reaction. I, I don't, I think, think about it as much as I used to and I think sometimes I lose that one you know, that sense of wonder that it can bring. But yeah, there's just, it's, it's an interesting, it's just so much you can, so many rabbit holes you can go down around that. Yes. Yeah. That could be a whole podcast episode in itself. <laughs> yeah. So, I know I'd have to brush up a lot on my, <laughs> on my old readings in order for that to be, I think, even remotely interesting. <laughs> so uh, share with us about the decision to study at Tulane. Yeah, so I, so my trajectory was a little bit um, unique. So I actually had, despite where I am today, I really didn't want to do anything in business or in healthcare. Um, so I wound up studying psychology um, because I really thought I wanted to do industrial organizational um, psych. So I've always been really intrigued with um, how do people make decisions and why, like, how do you motivate them, especially in something like a business setting where, you know, maybe the incentive isn't always immediately clear. Um, so that's thought, what I thought I would pursue. Um, I was able to get a scholarship that covered my tuition at Tulane. Um, and so the decision was pretty, 
pretty easy um, at that point. Um, it sounded a lot better than taking out loans. So, so yeah, that was that was I think really really the deciding factor. If I'm being totally honest. Okay, and I appreciate that that candor. And of course, climate-wise, it's very similar to Houston, uh, New Orleans. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, not far at all. <laughs> yeah. And then well, once you graduated, you spent some time, a few years in academia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I actually, yeah, so I actually have, I was going to go teach in Thailand. Um, wow. I really wanted to go abroad. I had only been abroad once when I was in high school. Um, and so I was really just fascinated with the world and different cultures and I thought okay well why don't I spend a year of my life going to teach in Thailand and then I'll come back and figure out what I'm going to do um but right before um I so a year before I graduated my mom had a pulmonary embolism and so my mom had a lot of health problems and is really a lot of the reason why I wound up on the professional trajectory that I did um, and I realized that, you know, thinking about going halfway around the world and having and thinking about my mom and just how fragile she was and how far away I would be from her, it just didn't seem like the right move. Um, and so I wound up moving back to Houston because I thought, okay, well, I can um, do some research and build up my resume and hopes of going to grad school. And I was still thinking I was going to go into IO psych. Um, and I can also be really close with my mom. Yeah. Um, and I am really glad I did um, because she actually wound up passing away a year mm-hmm. after I moved back. Wow. Um, and That's so it was one of those. Your side. Yeah. Um, so yeah, um, it was kind of, I didn't originally intend to go that way, but just given the factors with with my mom, it was the, the right thing to do was to move yeah. back. Yeah, absolutely. And this would have been about uh, five, six years ago? No, so this was actually in 2011. Oh, I see. Okay. Okay. It's about nine years ago. Uh, I lost my mom six years ago. So, um, no, and likewise, condolences. It's, uh, it's never easy. Um, uh, my mom happened to die of lung cancer, um, but non-smoker. It was all environmental. Oh, wow. Um, Yeah. So, yeah, I'm certainly familiar with family health issues (laughs) impacting the trajectory of where we go. Um, yeah. So uh, share with us about uh, Village Capital. Yeah, the Village Capital is a seed stage accelerator and investment fund. Um, It's a hybrid model. There's a nonprofit that runs the accelerator, and then there's affiliated funds that invest in companies that go through the accelerator. Um, So they were launching a program in Houston, and serendipitously got connected with the team there. They were still pretty early when I joined. Um, and I think I was full-time employee number seven or so. Um, so in many ways it was, I think like all of the accelerators and incubators. And I mean, even to, in many cases, early stage VC funds, it very much operates like a startup. Um, so I got to wear a lot of different hats and I ultimately wound up running their health practice. Um, which was focused on supporting seed stage entrepreneurs who were working to improve health outcomes for low-income and vulnerable populations. 
Okay, great. Well, and it doesn't sound like you specifically targeted being at a VC fund or an accelerator. Because most of us in our careers, who want that job, are very hyper-focused on that segment and kind of build our resumes in order to, to get there. But you, you mentioned it was a serendipitous uh, introduction. Um, share with us how that transpired. Yeah, so I'll be honest. <laughs> I had no idea what venture capital was probably until I was in my early 20s. Um, I don't have the typical background. Um, but I have always been really intrigued about the role that innovation can play. And so after my mom passed away, that was really the moment in my life where I decided that I did it as much as, you know, I thought I really wanted to do IO psych where I really wanted to put my efforts professionally was working to create a more fair and equitable health system just because my experience had showed me how just it wasn't um and there were so many areas of improvement um and so immediately for me i had tried to start a patient advocacy service but this was like i don't even think the ink on the aca was dry and so people weren't really sure where this patient empowerment piece was going to go Um, And so I really thought that where I could be um, more impactful was maybe in R&D or really on the early stage side. And so I spent some time at a biomedical engineering department at a university where I cut my teeth on doing everything from helping to organize conferences in Turkey um, to running a proof of concept clinical trial for an external cardiac device. And so through all that time, I got exposed to cutting edge technology that was in the lab, but potentially was commercializable. I also met some PIs who had gotten NSF or NIH SBIR phase one. But where I kept really seeing that bottleneck was after that, there was this big cliff. It just Mm. never really failed to it or it failed to reach its potential. Mm. Um, And so I became really intrigued with, okay, how do you what are the mechanisms out there to actually help bring these types of solutions or innovations to market? And that was kind of how I learned about venture capital um, was through that. And so I became really interested in um, VC through that process. Um, And then Village Capital came on my radar because they had done, I believe, an energy program in Houston. And so I was somewhat familiar with it. And so I was curious to learn what they were doing in health. I had reached out um, to a team member there. It was honestly a cold email (laughs) and got a response and then found out they were doing something in health and was able to to join on as an associate and then just worked my way up as a company group. That's that's fantastic. So um, Allison, I'm really curious, what were the experiences that you uh, went through that made you feel like, okay, this is what I'm going to continue on with and, and forget industrial organization? Um, so there were a couple of things. Um, my mom, the last decade of her life, really struggled to access the physical and mental health care services that she needed. Um, so she didn't have insurance. She was on the lower income side. Uh, and I watched this just 
snowball. It went from, okay, she can't get her depression medication to, okay, now she's self-medicating with alcohol to, and so it just became this spiral that ultimately wound up causing physical health problems that resulted in her passing away. And I, it, it escaped me through, I think that entire process of really, you know, essentially I was like a caregiver for her. I would send her money. I would, whenever I came home from school, make sure that she had groceries in the fridge and just, you know, those types of things. Um, I was so in the weeds with it that I didn't at the time think that there was a better way until the last week of her life when she was in ICU and she bounced in and out and no one was able to give me an answer of what was wrong with her, but they just kept blaming the fact that, Oh, she drinks too much. When she gets out, you're going to have to, to manage her. And they were almost, they were honestly, some of the doctors were just very rude about it. Um, And they were very dismissive, treated her almost like a second class patient because she had alcohol, she was suffering from alcoholism. And so through that process, there were a couple of things that became very clear to me. It's one, patients who are suffering, and I think this is slowly changing as mental health care has become destigmatized in the past couple of years. Um, There's oftentimes not, especially if they just don't have insurance or don't have the funds, there's really, it's really hard to find care. Um, And then second, for family members, after discharge of some kind of high acuity event, like in my mom's case, had she not passed, I would have had to have taken care of her. And I honestly have no idea how I would have done that. Um, And so I think what I found, what I thought would be those were just some of, I think, the the encounters that I had and over, I think, both the 10-year the span that she suffered, but also um, that last week where it all really started to crystallize for me around just inequality, um, inability to find care, yeah. um, and just having that sympathetic ear that can help, um, I think, in many ways, caregivers or other family members write some of these situations when you have someone suffering from, in my mom's case, alcoholism. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, and I'm, I'm sorry it was such a difficult path for her. Um, certainly is uh, sad in that um, maybe there, there could have been a different outcome had she gotten the, the help she needed along the way. Um, certainly mm-hmm. would have been a lot more more comfortable. Um, and so, uh, I appreciate your sharing that and, and being candid about it. Um, I think, you know, when we're motivated by personal experience, it, uh, becomes very, um, uh, pivotal to who we are and our essence. And so, um, it, it almost becomes a more a question of, um, like, or an issue of there's nothing else we would rather be doing. Like this is a mission now that we're, uh, really uh, passionate about. So I, I, you know, kudos, I give you a lot of credit for uh, the work you're doing. Um, when we were talking about Village Capital, um, so you clearly focused on, on the healthcare side. Um, I wanted to point out also that um, it looked like Village Capital was involved in peer selection, which is kind of a unique mm-hmm. uh, approach and, and value proposition. Maybe for our listeners, you can share a little bit about that. 
Yeah, so Village Capital's mission is is to democratize venture capital. And so the way that they go about doing that is changing the decision-making process and having the entrepreneurs actually decide who amongst themselves in a, co in a given cohort of companies going through an accelerator um, should be allotted a certain investment amount. Um, and so the entrepreneurs go through a three, four, so it's a series of three workshops, each is about four days long. And at the end of every workshop, they score each of the other participating companies across um, a variety of say, a variety of um, areas. And then um, the first two are trials. So it's not a cumulative process, but it's really meant to familiarize themselves with um, the ranking process. And then at the end of the third workshop, they do the actual final one and that uh, the outcome of that final uh, ranking decides who, which of those companies receives the the capital. Yeah, no, that's really fascinating. It's um, and a unique approach. Not everyone approaches it this way. Um, and it, it uh, I remember when I was was a VC and and with a fund, uh, the partners and I would always think about um, doing some kind of a, an outing where we got the portfolio companies together. Uh, and our thinking was, you know, you, you can BS the board, but you can't BS your peers. And so uh, <laughs> if you're trying to tell us why the last couple of quarters have been off, you know, uh, your peers will, will say, wait a minute, that's not what's happening in the industry or that's not what I've heard. So uh, it really, um, it's, it's, a, it's a good uh, gating mechanism or way to weed out <laughs> the, the prospect. It's so true. It's so true. And there's also, I think, just there's, so we were always very careful that we didn't select um, competitors so that people would feel comfortable sharing. And so there was also just a certain amount of expertise that the teams themselves were able to bring around certain areas, whether it be around selling to health insurers or to providers. And so everyone always joined the accelerator for the access to mentors or other investors. But then at the end, what they always reported back was that best people I met were the other people in my cohort. And so it's been really nice to, I still talk to several of the entrepreneurs that I met um, through that, through Village Capital. And a lot of them still talk with the other people in the cohort. Some of them have gone on to do partnerships. And so it's, yeah, there's something about that, that peer, peer to peer uh, work and collaboration that's, that's really powerful. That's great. That's fantastic. Um, what were some of the portfolio companies you worked on that um, that were you were really intrigued with, or that kind of grew under your uh, tutelage, so to speak? Yeah. So the first one that I, so the first program I ever worked on, we the investment that came out of that was One Doc Way. Um, so that Summer Malik's company that got bought by Genoa and then they, Genoa actually got bought by um, Optim about over a year ago. Okay. Um, and so Sommer's actually on the advisory board for Telocity and I've, so I've known him now for 
five years or so. Kind of crazy to think about coming up on six. (laughs) Um, So that was, that's been a great one. Um, And then we worked on a variety of each program every year that we did had a specific topic. And so the last one that I did prior to joining Vinage was actually went around senior care. Um, And so we, we didn't actually, the company wasn't peer selected, but they have gone on to raise a series A um, and it's care academy. And so basically they upskill um, home health aides with the goal of being to, for these home health agencies to retain them. And so um, Helen and Midori are the co-founders and they are just they are awesome. I randomly ran into Helen um, in January around JPM, and it was just an amazing <laughs> um, reconnection um, because it was, she lives in Boston. I live in Atlanta. We would have never, I mean, I guess around JPM, maybe you do expect that, right. but, but yeah, so those are, those are a few, um, but I think all the cubs, I mean, those are just a few. There are a few that, I mean, everyone that I worked with there, I think was really, was really doing some really awesome stuff and just were great people honestly um so nice i was glad i got to be a part of it yeah no it it sounds like a great experience and i was going to ask you how you transitioned from village to uh telocity vinage but you explained that uh one of the portfolio companies had a success and uh that became the backing then for for telocity no so actually um Telocity is part of a firm called Vinage. Um, so Vinage does two different things. It does innovation services and it also does investment services. Um, so Telocity sits under the investment services side and we run Telocity as a typical VC fund with a sole LP um, focused on improving uh, mental health for people between the ages of 10 and 24 years old. Um, and so the CEO of Vinage, I actually got to know through Village Capital. So I've known Anish Rubastava uh, for now probably four years or so. And about end of 2018 or so, he reached out and said, we're putting, you know, there's a very good chance we're going to be standing up this fund. Is this something you would be interested in? And it was definitely something was because it definitely it was definitely something that I was um, just because if you think about my own journey so much of what I was that really got me in this direction was related to inequities around mental health care um, and so I jumped at the chance to be a part of something that would take me almost full circle back to um, the reason why I got into all of this to begin with. Got you. No, that makes a lot of sense. And um, that particular age demographic, um, is there a reason to focus on that? Is it because there currently isn't a lot of focus on it? Or is there another metric that's driving that? Yeah, so I mean, I think you see a lot of investment dollars, a lot of innovation happening in the adult space, with a very good reason. Uh, you also see a fair amount of activity, although not totally in line around mental health, but in tangential areas in early childhood. But there's this bucket in, in adolescence, so that like 12 to 18, you don't see a lot of stuff happening. Yet, if you think about it from an impact standpoint, 
Um, so we are impact driven. There's a huge opportunity to intervene. Um, I think it's like 50% of mental health issues show symptoms before the age of 14. And there's literature out there that shows the earlier you intervene, the less of an impact it has on an individual's life later. Um, so we think that there's a huge opportunity, both from a market standpoint and just an impact standpoint, um, to, to be targeting that, that age range. And so we focus on 10 to 24 year olds, but you know, there's, like I said, that 12 to 18 year old, I think is really our sweet spot. Gotcha. No, that makes a lot of sense. Um, what are some portfolio companies that you're looking for? Yeah, so we have five portfolio companies. Um, three we have announced. One we will hopefully be announcing today. There's a TechCrunch article going out, and so as soon as it goes, we'll <laughs> we'll announce. Um, and then the the fifth one will come in a couple. We'll announce in a couple of weeks. Um, so the three that we have. Um, one is MindRight. So they're based out of Newark, New Jersey, um, founded by Ashley Edwards, who has deep personal experience with a problem that she's trying to solve. And so what she's working on is providing trauma-informed care through text messaging for her initial target population as urban youth of color. Um, and so there's a lot of reasons why um, she chose the format that she did, but that's one example of a portfolio company. Um, another one that we've invested in is actually based in Toronto, Canada. They originally started as a screen time management tool, but what really excited us about them was they're trying to create a wellness hub that curates third-party content. And so they started with some of the, the obvious suspects, mindfulness, um, and so they have partnerships with Shine and Stop Breathing Things, which is now my life and also another portfolio company of ours that got acquired by Meredith um, in October of last year. Um, but they are so focused on their user, which is they're going after college students. Mm -hmm. um, they are always doing in, you know, consumer research into what it is that they want. And one of the things that they found was that these college students really like to listen to lo-fi music when they're concentrating or studying. Um, and so they've added that a lo-fi radio station to their wellness hub as part of their offering. And so they're thinking about that content curation much more creatively than I would have thought of honestly, or what other, or what other people have seen, other people that I've seen do. So they're really in tune with their, that target market and are trying to create this comprehensive place almost a one-stop shop where if I'm a college student I can go and access this hub for my various um, wellness needs so. okay great yeah and then uh, the third one the third one is stop breathe and think which is now mind my life I'm sorry gotcha and okay. yeah and they actually got acquired by Meredith which is the media company that owns the likes of parents and people magazine Gotcha. So do you still have a holding in it or you exited? We exited, but we still, we have a lot of talks with, we still keep very close ties with the CEO and right. see how she's going. And yeah. there's a lot of, you know, interesting stuff that she's able to do now that she's with a larger company um, than she 
as you can imagine, she could do as a startup. So yeah, yeah it's been pretty cool to watch that journey. Oh, that's great. Are there any specific sub-segments that you're actively targeting? Yeah, so we are looking for, I think one of the areas that we've really honed in on in the past several months, I think even before COVID, but it's become very relevant with COVID, is this idea around how do you, how do you strengthen social connections in a virtual world? Um, and so we're really interested in things that enable people to maintain, create new relationships um, online. And so it could be something like a, a new form of social media. It could even be something like a, a new video type of communication that is like a Zoom 3.0, where it's not, you know, not as exhausting and it feels more like you're in the same room or, you know, whatever the case may be. I, if I knew what it was, I, I would probably build it because I think there's a real need. But, um, but yeah, so things like things really built around strengthening relationships virtually is something that we're paying a lot of attention to just because um, Cigna did a study a couple of years ago and it showed that this Despite the high, perceived hyperconnectivity of Gen Z, they're actually the loneliest generation currently living, um, which was pretty astounding for me. So there's certainly a need in a COVID world and certainly a need for, for Gen Z. That's so fascinating. I never would have guessed that either. I mean, with Snapchat and TikTok, you would think that uh, there's a lot of activity that they're engaged with. Um, that's, that's, well, that's the power of market research, right? Um, yeah. yeah. And, and so uh, other than industry segment or, or what they're working on, are there, are there any other uh, parameters or characteristics you'd like to see either in an entrepreneur or in an idea before you'll make an investment decision? Yeah, so I think we are always, and this was really instilled in me at Village Capital, that the people best positioned to solve a problem are those with direct experience with the problem. Um, so what that means is that for us is that we really want to see diversity in the types of founders that we're backing, because we think that with more diversity comes more diverse solutions. And that creates, honestly, just from a an economic standpoint, uh, a bigger, I think, potential market size. And so we really want to see, um, I'm out of the five companies that we've invested in, 80% have at least one female founder. Mm -hmm. um, and then we also have good racial, racial diversity. So 20% of, so one out of the five companies is um, founded by a black female. We have two of our portfolio companies are founded by a founder that identifies as Latinx. And so we're really trying to make sure that we, we are backing diverse teams. Um, beyond that, though, we do look for companies that are really, really aligned with serving our target age population. I would say that that's probably where we see it's, it's, you know, fairly binary for us. You are either serving in and it's core to your business model or it's not. And so I think that's the one that usually trips up um, founders or any potential investments for us is just that 
it's not totally aligned with, with that age piece. And then I guess the other one is that we are limited to the U.S. market. So we only invest in companies that have a majority of users um, in the U.S. And then beyond that, um, if you're based in um, just, again, this is maybe a little too in the weeds, but headquartered in either um, the U.S. or Canada or have an entity in, in the U.S. Gotcha. Okay. Um, would you look at uh, companies that are on the, the services side, maybe providing mental health services or, or consumer products even? Would those be areas you'd look at? Um, probably not. There needs to be a technology component for us. Yeah. Um, so MindRight is a great example of a tech-enabled service that we've invested in. Um, beyond that, though, it gets a little bit trickier for us to do um anything that's a pure service gotcha yeah. so you, you like uh, a clinic play you wouldn't be investing in that or i know there's some right. adaptogens i've learned of a company that's making an anti-anxiety edible non-cannabis based and so yeah. but that's sort of that wouldn't uh, fall in your parameters no no we're we're very focused on technology-enabled yeah, yeah, um, solutions. Right. Okay. On the just stage side, we're really focused on pre-seed and seed stage gotcha. um, companies. So that would be the only thing that I would add. Um, and, and your investment yeah. size range? It ranges from 50 to 250K. Gotcha. Perfect. Okay. So we write smaller checks, which is why we tend to go early. Yeah. No, that's, so that's the, I call it the fun stage of most businesses. Um, but that's kind of a personal bias. Um, uh, I'm notorious for taking a company from concept to a few million dollars in sales and then selling it to someone else who'll take it to the 20 to $50 million range. Um, I just, I don't like doing that stage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think there's a lot more bureaucracy um then yeah or i don't know the bigger you get then yeah. i guess i think it's i think it comes down to just like the opportunity to do different things like your day never looks the same yeah. um where i feel like the more uh, mature a company gets the more roles tend to become very structured and yes, a little bit siloed yeah exactly yeah well said well great Thank you so much again, Allison. It was really great to have you on and uh, really appreciate the work you're doing. Um, it's a needed segment. Gratitude, not only for the sector you're focusing on, but it's more than just writing a check. It's the nurturing and the, um, um, uh, you know, the, the incubator side of it. That's, uh, it's really meaningful and important to, to have these companies grow. And, uh, you know, you're finding good homes for them, so to speak, uh, in terms of the, these exits. And it's just is going to continue to make a big impact. Um, so it's really great to see. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed um, talking with you and hope to do it again soon. Achieve is recorded at Subtractive in Hangar 8 at the Santa Monica Airport. Music is produced by Hennedy.